This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This week's archival episode is with Roy Wood Jr., but first, an anecdote. So I produce these live comedy shows with Padma Lakshmi of Top Chef. I know a lot of that sentence is weird, but it is true. So we've done it twice, two shows a night, and they've raised a lot of money for some really great causes. Uh, It's easily one of the best things I've been lucky to be a part of. Also, the lineups are amazing, and Roy Wood Jr. has performed at both. So I was backstage running things at the Bell House in Brooklyn at the first show the first time we did it. Roy just got off stage after sensibly doing great, and I was like, that was great. To paraphrase, he explains it was good, but the problem is that he started with a sort of cynical joke, and charity show comedy audiences, he says, don't respond well to negative jokes. They don't want that energy. He said he'll figure it out for the next show, and he went off to a section of backstage that no one else was and sort of paced around. Later, before his set in the second show, he said he figured it out. He has this video game thing that he'll open with. It'll work with this audience as they are younger and nerdier. And it did. He killed. It was something to behold. I tell this story because hopefully it gives you a real sense of who Roy is as a comedian. Deliberate, thoughtful, and just so damn good at the art and job of being a stand-up comedian. The results are clear in his act, which you'll hear a particularly classic bit from his 2017 special Father Figure and his ability to talk about it. Side note, his 2019 special, No One Loves You, is truly next level. He really is one of the best. You know, I started this podcast to have the sort of conversations like I had with Roy for this episode, which we recorded live at Just for Laughs Toronto. It and he is a dream. So, here is Roy Wood Jr. Something's wrong, man. Just don't be one of these people that's surprised that black folks got issues. Then the people I can't deal with. I'd rather talk to somebody that don't agree with me than somebody that's had their eyes closed. How did you know black people? Why are black people angry? We've been angry. This ain't new. You think this just happened last couple of years? Black folks been trying to tell y'all forever that they had some issues and we sat, we invented the blues. What more of a sign did you need? We literally invented an entire genre of music based on sadness. That's how sad we, we, the blues was created here. That is an American art form. That is not native African. You go listen to old African music. The shit is happy because we was free. Every old African song. As soon as we got off the slave ship. We've been sad. How the hell are you surprised? They're not patriotic. The black people don't like the national anthem anymore. Ain't no shock to you, man. You want to know what black folks feeling? Just listen to their music. Our music tell you everything that's going on in the black psyche. It's a beautiful <laughs> telegram. And nowhere in the history of black music is there a hit patriotic song. <laughs> I mean, what we do. 
I mean, we'll cover a song, but like, we don't write no original patriotic song. Black artists ain't never, because we got a conflicted relationship with the country. You can't write no honest patriotic song. You got to leave that to white artists. They ain't had a good time. <laughs> you had a good time in America. you damn right. You should be writing the patriotic, and I'm proud to be an American. <laughs> They be serious. You couldn't possibly expect that level of patriotism from a race of people that have so many issues. You can't. It's not realistic. Black people don't, we don't sing about America. We sing about specific cities where you can have a good ass time. That's what we do. We don't talk about the country. We can tell you where the party at though. We can do that. Look, I can't tell you nothing about America, but let me tell you about the city where the heat is on all night on the beach to the early morn. Welcome to Miami. That's where you got to go. You ever been to California? Oh my God, boy, you got to go down to California, boy. Boy, California knows how to party. The city of LA, the city of good old Watts, and the city of Compton. They keep it rocking. Write that shit down. I'm trying to tell you. They keep it rocking. Black people don't do patriotism. Maybe Georgia on my mind. That's the closest we probably come. Maybe that, maybe that. That's a good song, it's warm, it's about the country. Ray Charles, Georgia on my mind, good song. But the key word in that song is on my mind. Ray Charles was just thinking about Georgia. He didn't tell you to go there. Georgia's like every other part of the South. It's got some pockets you should not be in after dark. If you'd have asked Ray Charles to be more specific on where in Georgia to go, he'd have said, go to Atlanta where the players play and they ride on them things like every day. (laughs) My Uncle Derek tried to shut me down on that one. What about James Brown living in America? That's patriotic. James Brown singing about America. It's original and he black. Living in America. Ah, ah, It's a good song, but keep it real, man. James Brown wrote that song for Rocky IV, and as soon as he finished singing it, Apollo Creed died in the ring. It's a sad song. It's a sad song. How can you hear living in America not think about Apollo Creed just falling lifeless to the... (laughs) Michael B. Jordan lost his daddy that day. (laughs) If anything, living in America is not patriotic. It's the opposite. It's a secret message to black people. James Brown is one of the most masterful musicians to ever walk this earth, dude. It's a brilliant song. That song ain't got nothing to do with America. That entire song, Living in America, is a secret message to black folks. All you gotta do, listen to the end of the song. Very end of Living in America. All James Brown do is just start naming cities. That's it, end of the song. Living in America, New Orleans, Detroit City, Dallas, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, Atlanta. He's just naming safe places for black folks. That's, that's it. He wrote 
wrote a song about America and then at the end told black people specifically where to go rent an apartment. He was just living in America, but only here in Detroit and Pittsburgh, New York City, Kansas City. That's all. Don't go nowhere else. Don't you go nowhere other than that. Hello. How are you all? That was a real argument I had with my uncle, by the way. Oh, I was going to ask that. I didn't know if that was a sort of like a comedy uncle. No, <laughs> like, no. My uncle and I had a nice heated debate about Kaepernick and taking the knee and what, what it means to be patriotic in, this, in these times. And we started talking about patriotic songs, and that's kind of where the joke... Oh, really? It really started. The evolution started. of that joke was from an argument I had with my uncle. And I was like, you know what? I'll prove it to you. We don't even write patriotic songs. And so I spent like two and a half days just Googling black music <laughs> and trying to find, and, and, and it was hard. Like you yeah. really can't find, a, not in comparison, not one-to-one -one with white artists in terms of the amount of original patriotic songs that come out. Like it's it's no competition. Yeah, I mean, you'll see people rep a city or a neighborhood, but you don't see... And so that's what I started noticing. And I yeah. go, huh, that's fascinating. And so I was like, okay, well, what are the cities have black people saying about it? And I started going down. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, I almost did one, one song I almost put into the bit. Um, There's a song... Um, living across 110th street yeah. and I was like this dude's just talking about a street like he won't even vouch for the whole town or a neighborhood yeah living across 110th street like really what about Dana no across 110th street but it was making the joke too long and the point was made by then so you had the argument you were I imagine preparing some sort of email or whatever to your uncle what at what point you know, I, I, what, at what point does you're like, oh, maybe this is a thing that I should be working on, you know, or, you know, like what is, what fires in your brain? You'd be like, oh, this is something that I might have an opinion about that's, you know, funny. For me, in terms of just the evolution of material, if it's some, something where I feel like, okay, here's an angle no one else has had on this thing, mm -hmm. then it becomes, how can I make this funny? So for me, a lot of jokes, sometimes it can evolve from a legitimate, oh, this was funny, I'll just tell the story and I know it'll be funny, versus this is a great opinion, this is a great perspective, I don't think anyone else has touched this issue from this angle, so now let me figure out how to, way to make this funny because it feels unique, because social media has really, in my opinion, changed the evolution of joke writing because... You think you have a joke, you think you have an idea, and I can take a sentence of my joke and just drop it into the Twitter search bar, and there'll be 50 tweets of yeah. people thinking the exact same thing or something in the same ballpark. So I have to drop that. I have to drop that because I don't know if it's a superiority complex or anything, but I just, I don't ever want people to come to my show and get a thought or perspective that they could have gotten on Twitter. Yeah. So it has to be something that's deeper that you can't explain in 140 characters. So if it's on Twitter or if I see it on Instagram or if it's in a meme, then that means the joke is too obvious. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't, it's not then necessary for you to do or for the medium of stand up to exist. You want yeah. a joke that 
has to be done. Yeah, why am I up here if I'm doing what you could get with three thumb swipes? That's not what this craft is about for me. So it has to be something that delves a lot deeper. So when you look at everything that was going on, when Kaepernick first started taking a knee, this joke was written, um, I'd say, January of 20... What are we, 2017 now? Um, When Kaepernick first started taking a knee in the fall of 2015, I shot my special February 2016. So the joke really only had probably six to seven months of incubation before I put it in the special. And generally speaking for me, I like to try and work a joke for about a year before I feel like this can go on Conan or this can go on whatever. But that joke just struck me as so timely yet timeless yeah because the other thing that i try not to do in my material um i try not to name people i try to discuss the issue because i feel like the issue of black patriotism will always be percolating for at least long enough for people who give a shit about what i do to to watch the special but if you start naming people and events and things I feel like it has a way of dating. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that's if you watch old stand-up where the comedian is political at all, they'll name like a senator or like the vice president of a time, and if you don't know who that is, the joke literally is that you can't even listen to it. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's interesting because if it's someone that you still know the issue about, it still stands up. But there's just something. It, it just depends on you know maybe. You know, a lot of people say that stand-up, a stand-up special should just be a slice of the world as it was mm-hmm. at that time. And I agree with that to an extent, but I would love it if someone could pop in my special 20 to 30 years from now and they're not left out on a single syllable yeah. of anything that I'm talking about. You, you mentioned, I mean, I, I've heard that you, you watch a lot of stand-up or you watch other people stand-up to watch get... all of it as much as I can. I have a CISO subscription. <laughs> and they're about to go under. Like, I, if it's... I think we're the last two with the CISOs. <laughs> yeah, probably so. I, that reminds me, I need to rip some stuff off that website before they shut it down. <laughs> did I just admit to piracy? I, <laughs> I think I did. Whoops. Who's going to go after you? There's no <laughs> yeah, you shut it down. Let me get my friends our specials. <laughs> yeah, I like watching comedy. I'm still a fan of it. Like, yeah. I watch... Um, there's this website, uh, the comics comic that I yeah. go to, and this guy, uh, Sean McCarthy, puts up every single comedian's late night appearance. Just if you've missed anyone on late night. So, like, once a month, I'll go there and sit for an hour <laughs> and watch everybody's four minutes of stand up. Uh, for me, it started more out of a necessity because I started comedy down south in 1998. And as a black comedian in the South, you're presumed to be what they call a Def Jam comedian, <laughs> an urban comedian who he talks about black stuff. Yeah. And that was never my style. Like I could do black rooms, but my material, I was fucking 19. So I didn't, I, I didn't have a bunch of, man, you ever been on a date? No, I hadn't. Like I was, I was too young. So what I figured out real fast is that with a lot of bookers down south, the way to get them to not see you as a Def Jam comic was to talk about things that most Def Jam comics would never discuss. So 
I sat for a year and watched BT's Comic View, which was the it. That was the it show <laughs> of the, of that of that era. Uh, six comedians a night, six nights a week for a year, and I just made notes yeah. on what topics. And I, by the end of their season, I had a list of every single topic that had been discussed on the show by every single comedian. And I made it a point to not write jokes about those topics. And that alone was enough when I sent a tape in for them to go, oh, yeah, you're so fresh. And I go, (laughs) I'm not fresh. You just haven't heard a black guy do a suicide joke. (laughs) Because nobody was talking about suicide. Like, no black comics back then were talking about suicide, not in the Def Jam world. So for me, it became a strategy of, what is everyone else talking about so I can avoid that altogether or I can approach it from an angle? I know a lot of comics don't like to watch any stand-up because they don't want it to pollute their process, but I've never had that issue. The only thing I've ever had an issue with is watching too much of comedians I enjoy because then I start emulating them. You pick up little... My first two years of comedy was a horrible Martin Lawrence impersonation. (laughs) (laughs) If you can envision me... Telling people you so crazy, girl. Like it was, it was horrible. I had to quit watching Martin Lawrence. I had to quit watching Doug Stanhope for a while. Like yeah. there's just people that I really love and respect that I kind of stay away from them, and I kind of know what their ballpark is anyway. But you know, all of the new people as well. I think that helps. And also, for me, from an industry standpoint, watching as much comedy as possible helps me see the trends. Yeah. You want to see what the industry is favoring right now, what is getting attention. And sometimes you can take a joke and tweak it just a bit and go, eh, there you go. I tricked you. You thought I was like them, but I'm not. Appreciate <laughs> so, the booking, though. Uh, so for like a joke like this, you know, what did you see that was existing and what did you see that was missing that you felt like there was an area for you to go in? I mean, a lot of comics had jokes about you know, Kaepernick taking a knee and things of that nature. But for me, I wanted to expand it out from the issue and just look at the whole sense of black patriotism as a whole. Like, are we even patriotic? Why have we been standing up until this point? Like, what's been going on that made us feel this way? And so that then the joke became a deep dive on patriotism and what it means to be patriotic and how was that shown? How do you demonstrate patriotism? And it's like, oh, okay, you stand and you do that. And okay, well, what if you didn't? What would happen if you didn't do yeah. that? And what other signs of patriotism are there? And it's always song, it's gatherings, it's dances. And that's kind of where the whole thing started. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, while watching this, I mean, I've seen it before when watching it again. I was thinking about like, or just there is a history of sort of black pride in America that is completely separate than the idea of American patriotism. Exactly. And that was a part of the joke. It ended up getting cut out because it was just too much to explain. But yeah, there is a black national anthem. Yeah. Like, I don't know of any other race in America that just goes, yeah, your anthem's cute, but listen, we wrote our own shit. <laughs> it's called Lift Every Voice and Sing. And it's, it's it reads like a pretty dope civil rights hymn. Yeah. And that type of stuff, you know, for me was where the more I looked at the issue, the more it's like pulling a thread at the carpet and you go, all right, there's not a lot of songs. I don't even know a lot of friends that have 
real overly like like I don't even know anybody with like an American flag shirt. And if they do, it's like some weird paint black outcast Jimi yeah, yeah. Hendrix. Like it's some sort of weird remixed version of the American flag, but just basic pure patriotic American type behavior. I see it more inconsistently in black people than I do white. Yeah. When you're trying to avoid doing jokes everyone else is doing, how do you then also avoid not just doing the opposite, right? I think there's like a style of comedian that'll be like, oh, everyone's saying like this thing is bad. What if I did a joke that's like, that says this thing is good, but it's essentially often- Yeah, a, the reversals. Yeah, of or like, contrarian. Yeah, it's just contrarian where for me, you could do that and you can begin to, no, you think it's bad, but it's good <laughs> because of this. Like how, like some comic would go, oh, well, terrorism will reduce traffic like like that type of yeah. you know what i mean like that's it's sick but like that's that weird reversal of ideology like for me it's just go deeper into the issue um you know who really got me thinking like that is jim gaffigan jim gaffigan this motherfucker <laughs> this motherfucker did on one of his albums i think he did seven consecutive minutes on bacon yeah bacon just the, well, like Jim Gaffigan takes a topic and he obliterates it from every possible prism. And bacon is the only meat that's so good you can add it to other meats. And it <laughs> like he's the bacon bits fake, but like it yeah. just he did the shrimp soup, shrimp scampi, shrimp tea. <laughs> like he just obliterates a topic. So for me, I go all right. Well, you can just flip it, but then why is this? Why does this exist? And I go oh. There's no black patriotism, and I'll prove it to you. Look at this song. Look at this song. Look at this song. Look at this song. James Brown, kind of op trick you. Even that song. So, <laughs> yeah. to me, it's just me going to ridiculous lengths mm -hmm. to support a thesis, which for me is really probably more the structure of my act now is trying to state a thesis or state a point of view, no matter how wacky or weird it is. And then you support it with evidence. Yeah. You, you do this, you do this, you do this. On, on a sort of practical level, I mean, at least from uh, reading interviews or hearing, it, you don't strike me as a comedian who will like, just go up with an idea and then talk about it for like months until it seems like you're, you know, how exactly do you actually flesh out an idea to a point where you are performing it? Uh, for me, it's there's a lot of new joke nights in New York City where established comics get to get up on stage with the understanding that they are trying stuff that they've probably never said before. And in that seven minutes, I'll go on stage with a couple of thoughts in my head and I'll go, okay, let's see where this joke goes. Let's try this a little bit. All right, let's try this a little bit. And you just keep adding to the joke. So if we're going to start with this joke, yeah. then the original evolution of that joke uh, was in a place of, you know, well, black people aren't patriotic. They don't need, I don't even know anyone that knows how to properly fold an American flag. And like the joke started about the Star Spangled Banner and how they're in the third verse, there's something about slavery and mm -hmm. like nobody listens to the lyrics of a good ass song. Like <laughs> once we all agree it's a good song, it doesn't matter what the lyrics are. The Star Spangled Banner could just, and slavery is great <laughs> and we love it. Like, and people would yeah. just be okay with it because yeah. it's a catchy tune. And you just keep going, you just keep going on stage and adding yeah. on to it. You add a little bit more, you add a little bit more. And then within my actual stand up shows, this is where it gets a little trickier because 
at an actual stand-up show where you have to do 50 minutes, you have people who've come and they've paid money, they've bought drinks and they got dressed and they're sitting there and they deserve a solid show with material that's polished and prepared. So you have to pick, or at least I choose to pick five minute spots within my act to do new material. Mm -hmm. And I essentially couch it between established material or make the new joke come across as a random segue while I go to sip water. And if you laugh at the random, just non sequitur, then I'll stay in that pocket creatively for a couple of more minutes until I feel like, all right, this is starting to suck. Let's start a new topic. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how, I'm, how I do now. And like I have a joke I'm working on now about how uh, president is the only job you can apply for and not get. And you get to write a book explaining why you didn't get the job. And so that's the thesis statement. But now I'm going to have to sit down and do research over the mm -hmm. next couple of months and see if that really is true. Are there other jobs that you can apply for? Like, like I, for, for a joke like that, yeah. it honestly requires a slow walk through the bookstore, through the autobiography <laughs> section. Who's writing books? What did they do before they wrote these books? What inspired these people to write these books? Who are the people that, and I think a lot of journalists sometimes write books, so there's something to the theory, the operating theory right now that a lot of books are written by unemployed people. Yeah. And we should not trust these people. <laughs> but that's just a thesis. So I have to go, I then have to go home and go do the research to make sure that thesis is supported. So it's a funny joke now, but the moment I make that statement, I've got to be rock solid yeah. in my theory. And that's what happened. The living in America part of that, like that's something that came from arguing because I thought that I was rock solid. There's no, you can't name a song. And then he goes, living in America. And I go, shit, you're right. But then I went back and read the lyrics and I found an out for myself. And then that's when I called my uncle back and talked more shit. <laughs> So you just have, you, you beta test everything piece by piece and you just add a little bit more and you add a little bit more. And I record my sets as often as I can. Um, I record audio pretty much every show. I record video, I'd say twice a month. Oh, interesting. I don't really con concern myself with the physicality of a bit until the actual structure of the bit is established. So once I know what the... Yeah, it's just it's 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 hard to explain. I'll try, but well, I mean, it's essentially like you a version of a like a script. In if this like in so much as stand up is like theater, you have a, some version of script, and before you can even do, like put it on its feet, you have to have the script finished. And Correct. And so I'll have a joke, and I know what the joke is, but then it becomes the issue of well, what happens if I perform the joke faster? What happens if I perform it slower? What happens if I perform it? with more arm movement or less arm movement. Like the, these things, these are all variants that yeah. I have to do to figure out what's the most efficient way. What gets me the most return on my investment with this joke from a structural standpoint as far as the verbiage? And once the verbiage is down pat, then I record myself to see what I'm doing physically that could enhance the joke. Because sometimes something as simple as being slumped or looking down can change, as I call it. If you rate jokes on a scale of one to five, a joke can go from a four to a three just because you looked at the floor. Yeah. So it just depends. So for someone like this, are you 
when you say getting the verbiage right, are you at some point essentially longhand writing it? Are you how do you get to the point where like this is the exact words of this give and take? Yeah, I'll transcribe once I really know it because a joke like that, it's a very specific journey and very specific points and adding extra words and adding extra sentences just kind of, it makes it seem rambly and less precise. You know, George Carlin was probably the best at it where he could verbatim nail a bit over and over and over again. Seinfeld is another one that the economy of words is just so clear in his act. If you've ever seen Seinfeld transcribed any of his bits, it's precise down to the common. It's fucking fascinating. Yeah, I I actually, like literally a week ago, wrote a piece where I did that and you realized he essentially, like one would write a poem, well, essentially pause mid-phrase to make sure that the laugh line is at the end of a phrase, even though that's not how the sentence works. Mm-hmm. Or he'll be he'll say, um, you know, just instead of the word into, which is not as funny as the word t- like t- in, he'll essentially change the verbiage of the thing just Correct. enough that you don't think he's speaking incorrectly, but it allows him to sort of, everything sets up what the, the joke will be about the word in, so he has to make sure he says in and not into, because <laughs> if he says into, he's essentially stepping on you hearing the word in clearly. Yeah, what what helping what transcribing helps me do is once I see my joke on paper, once I know what the joke is, type it out, then I can go through line by line like a writer, per se, and punch up little things, like little stuff like pronouns, change pronouns to names, like he, she, they, for me, as much as possible, none of that shit exists. It is a person. It yeah. is one individual in that story or in that scenario because it becomes more personalized. And because, and it also, for me, because if I'm talking about something that's edgy or something that people have a lot of different opinions on, I don't want to say they because someone in the audience might be part of they. And then you're pissed. And you're, <laughs> yeah. But if I go, if I go... My friend Doug is a Trump supporter, and I go, fuck Doug. As a Trump supporter in the crowd, you may figure, well, he's not talking about all Trump supporters. He's just talking about Doug. And I don't know Doug. Maybe Doug is an asshole. (laughs) And you still get to make the same jokes that you wanted to make, but it's on a more personal level, which I think, for me, paints a better picture. It's a little bit more visual than just going this group of people because I can achieve that same point with just being a little more specific. So when I see my stuff transcribed, you can see that. You can find, you know, synonyms and get into the thesaurus and, you know, it may be a part in the joke where I say bag or I grab the bag, but satchel might be funny. You know, that's, or satchel will be less funny, right? Because yeah, people will be like thinking about the word satchel. They'll be like, correct. Like, I, so the bit right now, I used to say, protesters are showing up with with water balloon with water with balloons filled with urine. In, in America, backstory. <laughs> At protests in America now, some people are showing up to the protests and throwing balloons filled with piss at the other protesters. They're literally filling balloons with urine. And so in the bid, it's, you know, they show up with bags full of urine, but satchel of urine is funnier. Yeah. 
because it's just it just seems more proper and prepared and just yes i have a satchel of urine like that yeah so when i transcribe it's little things like that where you change bag to something else or you change car to ford just little moments yeah. of specificity help bring a little bit it's it's the parsley on the top of the joke I've heard you talk about how you, you, uh, you know, fairly deliberately work jokes off in different audiences and different types of crowd. For a thing like this, you know, I think, can you ex explain what a, the different audiences that exist, at least in, like, in America, the type of audiences a comedian can play for, and how, what you would learn from each, what you're trying to learn from each? Um, for me, I'm trying to learn how everybody receives the joke, so... That was more of a forced, it was more of a forced state of being for me because down south, again, because it's so rural comparative to the coastal cities in America, you have to perform for a different demographic every week. So if you want to make money as a traveling comedian in the south, one week you're going to be performing for black people. The next night, you could be at a casino in New Orleans performing for a lot of old people and angry gamblers who lost their money. It could be a middle class room. It could be an alt room with a lot of, you know, like golf, like the golf scene and yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, people with multiple piercings. It could be anything like And then it could be a room where it's just straight up redneck racists who have, like, I've been called nigger from the back of the room while on stage, like that type of yeah. stuff. And it's too much stress to come up with 30 minutes, 40 minutes of jokes that work for each specific group. So for me, it's what the fuck will they all laugh at? What's the one thing? What's the one connector? So I feel like my writing style was created out of a need for fiscal survival. <laughs> because if you're only appealing to one group, you're not going to eat for the next four weeks. But if you want to eat every week, you figure out the joke. That it, So I started trying to find things that were common denominators, and that's current events and shared experiences. Like if I do a joke about McDonald's, everybody's going to McDonald's. Yeah. So it's just about my experience in this McDonald's. And if I'm telling you a story about what I went through, it doesn't matter what your race and your political beliefs are. You're just listening to a dude tell a story. So for me... That's kind of where that whole process started. And, and, and so when I take a joke that's a little more edgy, you know, I believe that a joke, no matter how critical it is, for me, you got to be able to perform it in front of the people that would be most likely to be offended by it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're a pussy. And you can't. <laughs> yeah. You don't deserve to do the joke. And so you take a joke like black patriotism and of course you put that on its feet. I, I did that joke uh, when I was preparing my hour special, I deliberately booked about 20 cities of differing demographics to run my hour special in so that by the time the taping arrived, I would know stylistically how to do this joke on television where it should hit everybody the same way or there'll be different peaks and valleys for every person. There's certain parts of that bit that are gonna hit home for black people more than say a veteran or someone like my uncle. But at the end of it, I'm not at any point in that joke. Or at least I hope the goal was mm -hmm. 
to not disrespect anyone that believes Colin Kaepernick should be standing. I'm simply writing a bit to explain to you why this why this psyche even exists in black people. That's yeah. that's the basic core of it. And it took a long time to get to that place because you you start that joke in a conservative room in Texas somewhere and you go, let me tell you what, black, no, stand up for the flag, damn it. And like in the middle of the bit, they just don't understand. And I go, okay, we got to tone down that part of the joke because somebody got pissed off. Well, you don't, at this point, you don't even, that, you get to the middle of the joke before you reveal that is what the joke is about. The first joke is just like the blues setup. Essentially, you have a joke that seems like that's what the joke is about. Like, oh, we invented the blues, the difference between African music and blues music. And then you were like, oh, this is actually a joke about black patriotism. So at that point, you kind of get the audience on your side. Yeah, and I feel like that's a fair point. Yeah. Everyone could agree, but oh, black people created the blues. It was sad. Okay, now we'll go with you on this journey, <laughs> yeah. which is why I try my best with the material to do something up front that earns me the right to have someone's attention because you can go on YouTube and just pull up videos of just comedy club fight and... <laughs> the last two years and there's people rushing the stage they're throwing glasses at comics like there's a lot of craziness so you know there's a lot of people in the audience and you don't know who's watching you in the crowd and there's no metal detectors at the door i'm not here to get murdered over these thoughts <laughs> so for me i'm trying my best to just make a point and if you get stirred up so be it but that was never the goal yeah. that was never the purpose it, it's just about earning the right to just for your mind to be open long enough for me to say what I have to say. And mm -hmm. that's, to me, that's that's all I'm trying to do with anything before I ease into something that's a little more yeah. dicey. A thing you do in this joke that I found really interesting is you'll just go directly to the reference of the lyrics without necessarily even saying what the song is, which essentially is, you know, there's a version of the joke would be like, or like Will Smith's Miami, and then you can be like, here's the lyrics, or like, but you just say the lyrics. Was that a matter of the audience knew exactly what you're talking about? I felt like it was a either you get it or you don't type joke. And even if you don't know the song Miami, you can kind of gather that that was a song about a city. Like you can yeah. kind of, you can kind of figure it out. And I just, I call those whisper jokes. Those are the ones where like that punchline, if you didn't get it, you just lean to one of your buddies and go, what the fuck? <laughs> What is it? Oh, Will Smith, yeah. Like, I was actually on the fence about the Ray Charles, George on my mind because I do George on my mind. Ray Charles didn't tell you where to go in Georgia. If you'd have asked Ray Charles where to go, he'd have say, go to Atlanta where the players play and they ride on them things like every day. Yeah. That's a 12-year-old ludicrous song. <laughs> it's extremely, like, that's a deep cut. Like, you not only do you have to love rap, you have to love Southern rap and you have to love ludicrous. And, <laughs> And it's one of those jokes, I would imagine, I would guess half the room was like, what the, f okay, all right, you said Atlanta, so I guess that's the joke. And so I felt like for as long as you hear the name of the city somewhere yeah. in there, you gather what it's about, and it's enough. And if you know the song, it's just a little extra for yeah. you. But then what is it like, knowing you have that, and then you're shooting the special in Atlanta, and you know that this is going to be an audience that is going to know exactly. Oh, I stacked the deck, oh, 100%. I did a <laughs> did a song about Atlanta in the city of Atlanta. I knew they would know it. And then yeah. I figured that the applause from the audience would make the viewer at home feel like they're dumb for not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're clapping, so it's, fuck it, it must be a song. 
Yeah, it's like a huge applause break. I feel like you probably sat in it longer. They still would have like yeah, cared I you out. Yeah, I milked that one. If I'd have shot it in Milwaukee, it wouldn't have done as well. But you say that it, it's funny because you did record your album. Your your last album was recorded in Wisconsin. You open it by pointing out the fact that it's an audience of white people, yes. and then you record your special in Atlanta, um, which many would think is sort of antithetical to what is Wisconsin, <laughs> is a way of putting it. <laughs> it is, yeah, and I shot it in Appleton, Wisconsin. I, Appleton is like, a, it's 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 near Green Bay, and it's very white. That crowd it's was 90% white. <laughs> so what is it, you know, one, why did you shoot in Atlanta? Considering that, you know, what is it different? You know, what did you want? As this is sort of your first visual representation of your comedy, why do you think you did that? Uh, I chose Atlanta because I feel like for the amount of material in my special about race and about civil rights, those jokes needed to be told to the people that need to hear them the most. Like, though, to me, the South, and I'm very partial to the South because that's where I'm from. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, and I feel like those people in pain deserve to laugh the most. So... If these jokes are about your pain and about what you're going through, then I should do those jokes there. And for someone watching at home, especially a black person watching at home, and you see black people in the audience and you see white people in the audience together laughing about this thing that has been causing us so much stress, then maybe there's some subliminal transference onto society about hey maybe we can't get through this shit together and you can't as a black man be on stage talking to an entirely white audience about black problems it just does not it's not authentic to me because with the first album that that i recorded in wisconsin it is a lot less racial there's a there's maybe one or two jokes about minorities and Latinos, but the overall arc of that album is not about yeah. anything to do with civil rights at all. The the other thing I found really interesting is so the special is called Father Figure, and there you know you start by talking to a, a baby, which I believe is your that son. is my baby. But you know when I'm you see that title and you no see that when I got a baby at the house. You got a perfectly good working baby. I'm not casting babies. <laughs> um, but I think when you see that title, and even I assumed, it's like, oh, this is going to be his special where he talks about being a father. And you basically you say the word father figure once sort of in passing, but at no point is that the subject of the, the special. It's maybe the subtext of the special. But what do you think it, how do you think it frames that specifically, the t- considering what you were talking about? Uh, the subtext is about the world in which we live and as a parent figuring out how to prepare my child for it. So for me, the opening scene, the opening scene of my special is just me talking to my son and giving him some life pointers about, I don't remember, wearing condoms. And mm-hmm. he's, he's, at the time he was eight months old. <laughs> so it's me talking to an eight month old about not mixing white and dark liquor. You know, real tips. Yeah, yeah. And trying to prepare him for the world and then going out on stage and then delving into what exactly this world is. What the hell are we doing? Where are we at right now at this time and space in the world? 
as a way to be like, if he watched this when he was old enough to understand it, it communicated something to my goal with this special is for my son to watch it and to be a lot less confused or at the minimum be more confident about how he can approach the world. That's really all it is. It's just a message to him that Comedy Central paid me for. <laughs> um, I, I heard you in like an interview like four years ago or something say like, oh, there's a type of material that you want to do, but you're not at a point in your career where you can do it yet. And you didn't necessarily get into it, but is there something that you felt that, is it because being a father or what age you are now or being having TV credits, is there something about whatever status that you're now perceived at that you felt, oh, this allows me to do certain things or is it more just this is what you're interested in? I think I'm, I think I'm past that point now because four years ago, um, just for perspective, four years ago, um, my sitcom had just gotten canceled that I was on on TBS with Steve Burns, Sullivan and Son. And I was doing some stuff with uh, ESPN and just being the joke guy on all of their sports argument shows that they have. And the only thing that I was getting at the time from a television standpoint to perform mm -hmm. was Conan. Conan O'Brien, there was a stretch in my career for about four or five years where Conan O'Brien was the only person who would touch me. Nobody else fucked with me on the performance side. Yeah. Everybody passed. Anytime I sent a five minute tape in, to anyone, and I'd done Letterman back in 06, but after that, the love was lost, and so doing Conan, there's only four and a half minutes, and there's only so much you can say, there's only so much you can do in four and a half minutes. The joke you just saw, what was that, six? Yeah, six and a half. Six and a half, super opinionated shit, they're not gonna let you do that on cable. Most late night television, where comedy is concerned, they don't want opinions, yeah. and Four years ago is where I kind of felt that turn creatively of my material becoming more opinionated. And I knew I would need a bigger stage or a different opportunity or for perceptions about me to change to be able to be the type of comic I wanted to be on TV. If you go back and watch any of my Conan stuff that's online right now and compare it to what you saw today, you'd be like, who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> and yeah. like, That's a guy just trying to stay afloat in the industry. Because you need that constant television exposure to make sure that the clubs will still book you and that you can get auditions and that you can get all of these other opportunities. But yeah, four years ago, creatively, I felt my material turning into a direction where there was no creative outlet for it yeah. other than an hour special or getting your own show. And thankfully, The Daily Show has been a very wonderful release valve for a lot of stuff that I want to say on stage, I can just walk on to a writer's meeting and go, you know what, man, fuck Toys R Us. <laughs> <laughs> and then just go on a Toys R Us rant. Yeah. And it's, it's perfect. This is the right place for it because I could never say that on Conan. Um, you know, a first special, there's certain there's a certain sort of tone a lot of first specials have. Like, oh, this is introducing myself to an audience, even if you've been doing comedy for forever. And though you didn't do like a classic, you know, I was born here or like I look like this mixed with that stuff. It, you know, how do you feel as this is a sort of, even though you've been on TV as an introduction to who you are as a perspective of what your comedy is, what do you think it says and how do you feel it represents that? How do I feel my special represents? You and what do you think it says? Like, oh, if you're, you know, what were you hoping an audience would take away about like, oh, who this is Roy Wood's um, comedy is like? I, I want to be that guy. The goal 
with my comedy, I feel like the highest compliment is when people are waiting on you to comment on something. Well, you've heard everyone else, and then you want to wait and see what they have to say. Like, for example, right now, I am itching to see Chris Rock's new Netflix special whenever yeah. it comes out. I don't even think he shoots it till the end of the year. Yeah. Like that, that type, like whatever Chappelle does next, like I would love, like Seinfeld's new special. Oh my God. Like these are, yeah. for me, if you see me, I want you to feel like I'm going to have a perspective that you've never heard before. And I feel like I got most of that down by just touching on a lot of different things in the special and making sure that I explain the world in a way that a lot of people wouldn't normally think about it. I talked about why I think recycling to some degree is racist. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't have the time to explain, but like basically, <laughs> it, basically stores give you the option of leaving without a bag. And I feel like as a black dude, you set me up to get beat up in the parking lot. I'm not leaving this store without a bag. I want two bags now. And so it's just that, like, like, and like even how I opened the special. For me, that was key. I opened my special without saying hello. You don't yeah. know who I am. Fuck a hello. Get to the jokes. If the joke is funny, then you've earned a hello. So for me, out the gate, the first sentence out my mouth is, God, I can't even remember my own material. But if we get rid of the Confederate flag, yeah. how are we going to know who the dangerous white people are? <laughs> first line. First line, defending the Confederate flag on a justifiable point that even a black person could agree with. Yeah. And that's the type of joke you have to take to a black room to make sure that <laughs> black people still respect you at yeah, the yeah. end of it. Because for me, it's, I wanted to just jar people immediately and go, oh shit, this guy is talking about something different I've never heard before. Let's see where this goes. And that's what I always want to be known as, is just being sure to have an opinion that's, that's deeper and a little more refined than what you're used to getting from wherever your comedic interest lie and making sure that whatever you see when you see me on is going to be something that you haven't seen or heard before, or at least a perspective that you hadn't considered, even if you don't agree with me. You know, you know, when is a joke finished for you in so much as like this topic is in the news like this morning, the, the president is still tweeting about the this, NFL, the, you know, do you feel a desire to be like, bring it up? I mean, you have essentially like, there's like obviously there's sort of um, it's a taboo to not reuse material, but I imagine there's part of you that might still be developing opinions about this subject. Yeah, it's it's a difficult. Uh, the president is just such a different joke world because it's a moving target that's constantly evolving and it's constantly changing. And you could write 20 minutes about one thing and then he reverses his opinion. Well, now what are you going to do with that material? You know, so. Like, you could have had a joke about the wall and him building the wall. And, well, now the wall is supposed to be see-through but have solar panels on the top. And this is real. I'm not even making this up. This, that's literally what he said. It's going to be see-through with solar panels, these nuclear solar panels, I guess. 
So events happen that keep adding on to it, which is why I'm more of a I'm more of an issue than mm-hmm. an event or person kind of guy. Like I'm trying to figure it out right now. I'm um I'm emceeing the congressional correspondence dinner in a month and it'll be a room full of pretty much every American hi-hat and I have to figure out what issues I want to shit down their throat on. (laughs) But the issues keep changing. So I could start writing my act today, but in five weeks when we go and tape, 20 different things would have happened by then. So it's almost something that's gonna constantly evolve and constantly be, you know, creating. So it's not it's it's not something I enjoy. Yeah. Cause it forces you to stay on topic with an issue. And it's just you you start following that. And like to report every week on what Trump did, like that's you're just saying he did this and here's a joke about it. And here's why you shouldn't think that way. It's like well, there's gotta be more. There's gotta be something yeah. bigger to that. Like to me the issue isn't Trump, it's the people in office who don't stand up to him. Yeah. Like to me, that's the bigger deep dive because if you look at the one consistent motif through all of our pres- my president's antics since he's been sworn in, the one consistent narrative is that nobody stands up to him. So to me, yeah. that's what I would talk about. I wanna talk about who are all these people who don't go, hey man, don't <laughs> fucking tweet today. <laughs> That worked. Uh, that sound means it's time for the final segment. It's uh, called the laughing round, so it's like a lightning round, but because this is comedy, it's a laughing round. I thought that was the Green Goblin from Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, it might be. We just pulled the laugh from somewhere. I don't know where it's from. <laughs> All right, lightning round. Yeah, so uh, general lightning rule, line, lightning round rules apply. Uh, do you have a favorite joke joke, street joke? No, not really. I never really did stock jokes or whatever. And yeah. the only ones I know are like the really racist ones. <laughs> yeah. So I can't like yeah, share those. You don't, you no. don't want to say like one. anti-black racist ones. And I yeah. know them because white people at the racist rooms I would do down south would share them with me after the show. So if you could steal anyone's joke and it's not stealing, no one know, essentially you would then have the joke. The person's previous version wouldn't exist, but now it's your joke. Any joke ever, what would it be? George Carlin, a place for my stuff. That is the one of the most masterful, in-depth, like where he just breaks down how a house is just a place for your stuff, and then a suitcase is a smaller place <laughs> for your stuff, and then a dresser, and then you get on the airplane. Yeah. It, like it just the layers, and then you sit back and look at it, and you go, "Damn, he's right." We just <laughs> Got a lot of shit we don't really need. <laughs> yeah. It, like, it, it's a joke that it's timeless in the sense that you could play that for someone right now, not tell them that this guy died years ago, and they would go, oh, that's, that's funny. Where can I go see him? Like, that joke still stands up. Yeah. Like, that's, that's one of the best ones. Um, as a, a baseball fan and a person who has some radio uh, background, if you were to call a baseball game, and you know how a lot of announcers have like a thing they say when people hit home runs. <laughs> what would you? What would you like to be your signature exclamation? Two-two pitch. Now he's gonna line up. Johnson steps in, swing and a deep drive left field is <laughs> home run. Chicago Cubs <laughs> sky by the left field. 
Um, what was the best or most useful heckle or heckler of your career? Ooh. Most useful. Where you're like, they're right. That, that is a good point. Oh. Ooh, shit. I'll give you one. So I was in St. Louis a week after the Ferguson riots. Yeah. <laughs> a week after the, like, shit is still smoldering. And I'm on stage, and this is also to the point about why you have to put up race material in front of black people. Um, I was trying to make a point about proper protesting and violent, pro and I hadn't done research, hadn't done enough reading, and basically, when I went back and listened to the audio of the performance, what I was saying was basically, it came across kinda all lives matter-ish, sure. and, I am not, like, I really believe what the, the work that Black Lives Matter has done has changed things in America. And for them to be judged by a couple of assholes who show up to these protests starting bullshit, I'm not with that. And so I was trying to make a point about assholes at protests. That was the point I was trying to make. But it didn't come out the right way. And a lady in the back of the room, she just stands up, black lady. She just goes, she goes, no. <laughs> I go, what? No. And then she fucking reads me up and down for six minutes. Like, it wasn't even a heckle as much as it was like a town hall meeting broke out. <laughs> but this is a lady living at ground zero yeah. of the issue. She's in St. Louis, which per capita, the police department there kills more people than any other police department in the country. So... She, if anybody is educated on the subject of protests and what happens, it's the fucking lady who lives up the street from the fucking riots. And she fucking read me up and down and I took my ass home and <laughs> figured out and reshaped the bit and fixed and, and it. And I fixed it. Yeah. But I needed that. I needed that interaction to make sure that I'm not misunderstood because that's the other problem with social media now is that if you slip up once, it's fuck you forever. And you may not have even meant what you said the way you said it, but the context and the tweet and it's retweeted and then you're screwed. So being precise in how you build an edgy opinion is also very dangerous. I know this is the lightning. No, round. that's good. Lightning is, you know, general lightning. I, I apologize. No, that, that was a great answer. But yeah, I did a joke about black people ride and a week after black people <laughs> ride, it'll block away from where black people <laughs> ride and... and one of the black people out there said, motherfucker, you wrong, you don't know shit. Do you have a, a favorite moment while doing a daily show field piece where someone says something and you're like, well, that's going to go on. That's going on television. <laughs> There's a lot of those moments where, and, it, and for the record with the daily show, we don't set these people up. They're not actors. Like they're, The way it's done is you have an opinion about an issue and I'm just going to have a conversation with you about your opinion. That's yeah. it. And no matter what your opinion is, I'm just here to listen to you mm -hmm. about your opinion. Um, God, there's so many. We we did a um, we did a piece on <laughs> on racism in in pornography. <laughs> yeah, this I didn't know it was racism either. <laughs> But apparently they pay black people less to bang. I, I don't want to get into the nuance of it. But, <laughs> but I'm talking to Ron Jeremy. 
porn legend. And Ron Jeremy, we were shooting this sketch at the end of and if, if you guys haven't seen Ron Jeremy lately, he's built like a hedgehog. <laughs> it, like, I mean, like hair and all. Like, it's just full on spiky hair. And, and so we're shooting a sketch where we're shooting this all-inclusive porn scene where it's me with people of all races, men, women, just it's gay, trans, everybody come on in the bed. We're going to have this super orgy and Ron Jeremy is supposed to come in and just wave. That's, <laughs> that's the line we give Ron Jeremy. Just, hey, Ron, come in, wave, get the hell out of the scene. Ron Jeremy walks into the room with just a shirt on and underwear and comes up and just starts humping everybody in the bed and in the back of my, like one part of my brain is like, this is disgusting. But then the other part of my brain is like, yep, this is going on the air. <laughs> We're definitely using this. Uh, last one. Is there a joke or an idea that you've always found really, really funny and then every single time you've ever tried to bring it up, you, it never gets any sort of reaction? But you still will always think it's funny. So the joke goes like this. <laughs> when I die, I want to be buried in a storage unit so that I can finally be on an episode of Storage Wars. <laughs> and see, I don't know why it works here, but like on stage, <laughs> trust me, it never works because yeah. everybody instantly visualizes a casket. Yeah, or in a, just yeah. pulling up and then just seeing a dead body. Yeah, like. and then you're talking about your own death, which makes people think about their own death. It's, just, it's, <laughs> it's a weird joke, but it just never, never works. I try it at colleges. It definitely doesn't work at casinos with the old people. They don't, <laughs> they don't want to hear about caskets. Yeah, they're like, are you, is this advice? <laughs> like, you're just giving an idea. Uh, Roy Wood Jr., thank you guys for coming. This has been Good One. Thank you all. That's it for another episode of Good One. Follow Roy on social media at Roy Wood Jr. Good One is produced by me and Mike Comente. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox. You can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.